If you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, trying to see if two lovebirds are present this morning, and I see them perched on the balcony, uh, Lonnie and Pam Luce. Uh, Pam has been gone for the last six weeks to be with her mom. I probably shouldn't put this on top of that drum, but... And uh, yesterday, they celebrated their 45th wedding anniversary. So I think that's something to celebrate. <laughs> Pam, we ought to give you a medal for putting up with Lonnie for all those years. <laughs> that's what Sean said. Sean is their oldest son, their older son. Uh, anyway, it's always neat to be able to... Uh, celebrate anniversaries. I think that's, that is wonderful, and congratulations. I hope you all had a special day yesterday. 45 years, wow, that's, that's amazing. You must have gotten married when you were both 12 or 13. Uh, they don't look that old to me. Anyway, Luke chapter 2, I hope you all have gotten your Christmas, uh, all the gatherings that you've had. I know some people are just getting together this week, and that's great. It's always time. It's always a good time to get together with families, and it's always great to be able to look back at what Jesus did and what it means for us. And so, this morning, I want us to look at a passage in Luke's account. And I know we've been through Luke before, and we've looked at this same text uh, over and over in the past. But like I said last week, one of the neat things that we get to do as people of God is to be able to hear the same story over and over. This is really where our foundation comes. It is not to make the story any better, because you cannot make it any better. It is simply to retell the story over and over again, and how important that is, both in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ in His first advent, when He was born 2,000 years ago, and also the story of His uh, suffering, His death, His burial, and His resurrection, which we will be celebrating the latter part of March, and actually starting February the 10th, we will begin our series on, as soon as we get through with Luke, not Luke, we've been through with Luke for a while, with, with Acts, actually Luke wrote Acts, so I can say Luke, uh, but we will finish with Acts, and then I think there's one or two Sundays where we will just look at the familiar uh, Psalms, and then we will start the series on the seven last words of the Lord Jesus Christ as He hung on that cross, leading up to after the seventh word of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is the following Sunday will be Easter. So for eight, eight weeks, we will be looking forward to Easter and then Easter Sunday. Um, so that's coming up soon, and so you all be in preparation for that. Anyway, chapter 2, we'll begin reading in, chap, in chapter 2, verse 21. It says, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, meaning Jesus, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit 
that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many, will, of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much, Father, for who Christ is, and Father, for preserving for us stories like these two godly people of Simeon and, and Anna, and how they waited and waited for, year, for years for the Messiah, for them to be able to, to see the fulfillment of the promise beginning in Genesis. Lord, the, the seed of the woman will come to be the redeemer of his people Israel and of all people in the world. And so, Father, this morning, my prayer is that we will see Jesus in that same way and that for those of us who know Christ, Lord, that in, in the same way that these people, Simeon and, and Anna, long to see the coming of Christ, may we also long to see the coming of Christ as we await His second coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was giving uh, Lonnie and Pam a hard time, but yesterday Ryan Connell got, uh, did a funeral. And not a funeral. What, what did you do? A wedding. A wedding. That is not a slip of the tongue. Well, it is on my part, but not on his part. I didn't do it. It was, it was a wedding. How can you mistake a wedding for a funeral? Anyway, he did a wedding. Was, and one of the things I love about weddings is um, you look forward, especially the, the girls, especially the, the, the bride. They look forward. They start planning this thing. I still remember when Rachel and Cole got engaged last year. Uh, we were in San Antonio and, and uh, went to see Les Mis in San Antonio. And then they went on their way and Kim and I went back to the hotel. And, and, uh, and then they got engaged that night and woke us up in the middle of the night to tell us, show us the ring. I don't remember anything. Kim told me what happened that night. But anyway, 
so there was this, this, this planning that started, I say that started, I think it's been going on for a long time before really they were engaged. I think, I have a suspicion that girls start planning their weddings when they're little girls. And I think Rachel started planning her wedding when she was probably about eight or nine or ten. And, you know, they just love to play like dress up and they're getting married and all of these things. And guys, however, on the other hand, I think they just live by the day. I don't know how many grooms I've been with on the night or, or the day or the hour of their wedding. And they'll be pacing back and forth and all they can say is, I just want this to be over with. And women, normally the brides would memorize these long romantic things to say to their groom. The grooms, they just going about, run, I mean, walking about back and forth, muttering, I do, I do, I do. And I thought, surely you're not going to forget that. Plus, I will give you the cue to say, I do. But that's, that's something that we look forward to. And then the wedding comes, and it's, it's great. You know, all the, uh, all, all the preparations, all the expense, and all the people involved in it, all of a sudden comes into this one glorious moment when they're married. And again, the women, the bride, they want to enjoy every aspect of that thing. In fact, they don't want to leave. I, was a, I did a wedding for uh, uh, one of our young couples before, Matt and Lauren Blanton. And we did the wedding and did the, re- I mean, not the rehearsal, but the uh, uh, reception. And Lauren still wanted to s- visit with everybody that was in the room. She didn't want to leave. Finally, Matt had to say, honey, we got to go. And we had to help him encourage her to go ahead and leave because they wanted to, to just squeeze as much out of that experience as they possibly can. And then it's, it's over. Well, waiting is, is such a good thing if you're looking, for something, looking forward to something that is wonderful. Well, we find two people in this narrative, in this story, who were waiting for, not just for Christmas, this is something that they've been waiting for for a long, long time. Jews, Jewish people who understood, like Simeon and Anna, who understood what the prophecies were. They understood what had gone on, what had been promised from Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman uh, was going to, to, to come, was God was going to, to uh, ascend the Messiah. And that was echoed all throughout the Old Testament by the prophets until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, in, as recorded in Luke and Matthew. And so for, everyone, for, for the Jews, everything that they did uh, all of the feasts, all of the ceremonies that they did, all of the observances of the law, all of those were pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And so for them, it was something that they had done over and over, and they knew there was something here that we, we will see, especially in Simeon's part, that God had promised him this, that, that he will see the Messiah. So let's look at the text. Well, the first guy that we, we find here is, is, is a man named Simeon. Look at the description that it was given, that Luke gives us here about Simeon, beginning in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, and it says he was, who was righteous. Uh, righteous, the word righteous here is the same word that is used in, in, uh, in chapter 1 uh, of, of, uh, of Luke, when it says, speaking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, and explains to us what it means. It says, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And so as much as they possibly could, 
both Zechariah, Elizabeth, and here, Simeon, was walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. He was very devout. He was also very devout. Uh, this is the same characteristic that you find in the book of Acts uh, of believers. In Acts chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then Acts 8, 2, after the, this, the martyrdom of Stephen, it says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And then Acts twenty two twelve, when Paul was, was uh, defending himself and says, and, and, and he's talking about his, his experience with the Lord Jesus Christ after he was blinded. And then he says in verse 12, And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. So Simeon was a guy who had this sensitivity to the heart of God, and so he was obedient to the laws of God, and he followed it as closely as he possibly could, and he was also very devout. The third thing that we, we see about him is it says here in verse 25 also, it says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, I know the English word consolation doesn't sound very good. Normally, if you have a, a, um, um, a program or a contest, normally you have first, second, uh, third uh, prize winners, and then you have the consolation prize. Well, the word for consolation here, really, it's, it's an interesting word. It's it is used a lot in the New Testament. It's where, it's where we get the word for Holy Spirit, uh, uh, the, the paraclete, and it means to come alongside. And so it, it's more than, just, more than just the consolation, kind of like, okay, you didn't get first, second, and third prize, but you're going to get the consolation. It means what God had promised, what God had done when he left Adam and Eve in the garden, that he was not going to be with man anymore. Until the, the work of the seed of that woman was accomplished through Christ. He said, this is now the consolation of Israel, meaning one who comes alongside you. One who, God who is now Emmanuel, God with us, and he was going to be with them. And that's really what the word means. And so he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. So this is a guy who understood what the scripture said, and he was waiting, and he was praying. He was a righteous man. He was devout, and he was anticipating the promise, the fulfillment of the promise of God. Actually, one of the prayers, the traditional prayers, Jewish prayers, is this. May I see the consolation of Israel. Probably had to do also with the passage, like passages in the Old Testament, like, let me just give you one, Isaiah chapter 40, where God tells them, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the promise of the Messiah and what the Messiah was going to do. The restoration of this broken relationship between sinful men and righteous God and holy God. And not only that, but also the, the, all of the, the mankind will see the glory of the Lord. And that was still going to come in the future. But, but this is the promise that God had given his people. And those Righteous and devout men like Simeon understood the prophecy. And so they were looking for that consolation of Israel when what God had promised, he said he was going to fulfill. 
Not only was he righteous and devout, not only was he looking for the consolation of Israel, it also says in verse 26, I'm sorry, in verse 25, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He had the Holy Spirit that was upon him. Remember in the Old Testament, prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit in, in Acts chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit would descend upon people as for special jobs that they were going to do, and then he would leave them. And that, that is why the prayer of David in, the, in, in, in Psalm 51, when it says, please do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. Why? Because at that time, God will send his Holy Spirit, and then he'll take his Holy Spirit away. When the prophets, like, or the prophets would prophesy, the Spirit of God would descend upon them. And even so, that even guys who were not like really prophets, like Saul, when he was first named king, God gave him his Spirit, and he joined the prophets, and he began prophesying. So it was for a special task. And we see here that he was about to do a special task. And it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. And so we also knew, it, it Luke gives us this, this, this record to give us a clue, a hint, that what he's about to say has credence, not only credence, but it is taken as God's word. Well, let's look at what he says. Well, one thing that, that it, it says, verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. And here, beginning in verse 29, you find, 332, you find his song. This is Simeon's song, and this is the fifth song. This is the fifth Christmas song that you find in the Gospel of Luke. The first one is, by, of course, by Elizabeth. Uh, in chapter 1, and then Mary also in chapter 1, Zacharias in chapter 1 also, and then the angels in the early part of chapter 2. And then here you find Simeon singing this praise and this, this worship of God. I, I love this, this worship, this joyful worship that he had. It says, Simeon took him in his arms. He had probably walked into the temple about the time as the Holy Spirit had led him and Mary and, and Joseph were, were there, and he saw him, and the Holy Spirit sure gave him uh, understanding that this was the promised Messiah. And so he took Jesus in his arms, and he praised God, and he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. Some of your translations say, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word according to your word. This is a joyful, this is a joyful worship, a joyful fulfillment of what he had been anticipating because of what it says in verse 25, that he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel in that, which he looked forward to. Finally, he got to see the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, and he took him upon his, on his arms and he praised God for him. And so he sang this song, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He was kind of like fulfilled in where he was, according to your word. When uh, last year, during the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, and uh, Ryan and Philip and I got to go, and, and we got to visit, I mean, we got to listen to several of the young men who, young preachers in the SBTC, and I was so encouraged by just the kind of teaching and preaching that was going on. I don't know if you all know this, one of the struggles we've had in, in, in our churches for a long, long time, 
some of the people who would say that the problem with the Southern Baptist of, Conven uh, Southern Baptist of Texas, uh, the, the convention, the national denomination, has been political. It's actually not political. I'm sure it involves some politics, the, the politicking of trying to make sure that offices were manned by people uh, who, from one side or the other. But the origin of all of that has to do with theology, with our understanding of the Word of God. There were people in the past, beginning in the 1960s, actually it's older than that, but in the 1960s when there was a book that was published by a professor at Southwestern Seminary that basically denied the, the historicity and the authenticity, for instance, of the creation account. And there are a lot of people who bought into that. It cannot be, they said, a, a real thing. It, it's got to be just simply an allegorical story. And it became a battleground. Part of what's been going on, actually, has been going on for a long, long time because of the, during the period of the Enlightenment in Europe, and they, it, it, a lot of the theology schools in Germany, they started basically saying that the world, the way we understand it, truth and reality can only be defined by science and that which we can test empirically. And because a lot of the things that you find in the scriptures, like, for instance, the, the, uh, the miracles, they could not test them. And they were saying those things cannot be true. In fact, one German school of theology said that, or one German theologian said uh, that he did away with everything that you could not explain by reason and empiricism in, in the New Testament. And he came up with, I think if I remember this correctly, only 26 verses in the New Testament. And so this battle has been going on in Europe, and then they, they came to the United States and in, infected our schools, and so for a long time, and still today, it's still going on. There's this battle of what is it that we preach? What is it that we teach? Is it books? Do we preach books that we read, or do we preach from the Word of God? Of course, our commitment in, in our church is to always preach the Word of God. We have nothing to share with you as Bible teachers except what God has said in His Word. I've told people this, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, where verse 1 is the preface to the, the command in verse 2 of chapter 4. But it says this, I'll tell you what, chap what verse 2 says. It says, preach the word in season and out of season. But verse 1 scares me to death, and I'll tell you why. Verse 1 says, in the presence of God, if you can imagine God, this is in His presence, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. This is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. In the person of God and of Christ Jesus, and then he says, who will judge the living and the dead. He is the ultimate judge of everyone. And it says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing, that he is coming back, that he will appear, he will judge all of the nations, including believers, including us for the things we've done in the body as believers. It says, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing, and in view of his kingdom, his coming kingdom, that he will establish this kingdom. It says, I give you this charge. And there's one charge. It says, preach the word. The word preach means to proclaim, to herald, to shout out, to explain to people. And that is the reason why we take it so seriously what it is that we do. And that is why we spend the kind of time we spend in the Word of God. We cannot, we have no right, Bible teachers have no right to stand in front of God's people and simply shoot from their hip. Because what we're giving people is God's 
word. And the only way we can know what God says is if we spend some time in it, taught by the Holy Spirit, and try to understand it. It is not to make you feel better. It is not to tell you things that you'd want to hear. It is not simply to moralize the text. It is to simply explain to you what God has said. And you've heard me say this before. Our role is we're like mailmen. We're like delivery people. We just deliver God's mail. And God doesn't want his mail to be messed with by people like myself. And he doesn't want, and he wants his people to hear his word. Going back to the SBTC conference that the three of us went to, every single one of those guys that we heard did a wonderful job of simply explaining the text, reading, explaining the text, the word of God, and applying it. And I remember turning to Ryan and Philip, and I, and I told them, I said, because this is something that's been going on for so long, and I just looked at them. Of course, I was kidding. Well, sort of. I said, I can die now. I, I'm perfectly happy to die now because there are younger men who are taking that torch and saying, we will preach the word of God faithfully. Well, this guy, Simeon, had that sense. He said, he said, Sovereign Lord, he said, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And really, that's what he meant by that. The word depart is a euphemism for death, for dying. And I know this is a struggle for a lot of, a lot of us today, even for Christians. I understand that there is a tendency, there is an instinctive nature in all of us to want to live longer. I understand that. God didn't give us an instinct to die. It's not that. Death was not a part of, how, of God's design in creation. Death came because of sin, and we need to remember that. And if I'm standing on the side of the road, and I'm visiting with someone, and there's a lot of traffic, and I start falling, like, towards, like uh, tumbling towards the, the traffic, my tendency is not, my instinctive tendency is not to jump in front of the cars or the buses or the vehicles but, or traffic, but to move back because that's instinctively what God gives us. But there's also a sense that for believers, for followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's this longing about seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting because the word for depart here, it's the word for depart. The Greek word for de depart has at least four meanings that we know of in the Greek. One, it means to release a prisoner. Also, it means to untie a ship and set sail. Third, it also means to take down a tent. And we know this, this imagery, and Paul uses this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he talks about our tent here. It also means to unyoke a beast of burden. The Lord uses this in Matthew 11, 28 and 30, through 30, when he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you know, I, I don't know about you, in just this last couple of weeks, I've, I've heard stories, uh, just stories of just people struggles that people have during the holidays, sickness, death, uh, that have hit all of our families. I mean, it seems like there's, there's a lot of just burdens in people's lives. And you know, 
Paul talks about that. The Word of God talks about that. For instance, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, about the burdens that we carry. Sometimes they're so heavy we can't even look up. And there's a sense, there's a sense for us that when we face death and that when we are released from these bodies and we face the Lord Jesus Christ, we are released from all the burdens and, and, and we are now free to, to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We no longer will have to suffer what it is that we've suffered in this, in this fallen world. We live in a fallen world. Um, this is something that I know this is a truth that is so hard for us. I mean, we have to say it over and over, and we can just trust God to highlight it for us because there's so much teaching that tells us out there that if you're a Christian, you, de- you don't deserve to suffer. You don't go deserve to have problems. You don't deserve to have financial issues. You don't deserve to be sick. And you, you can, by the power of your faith, your own faith, you can basically lift yourself up out of this uh, quagmire of whatever suffering and, and tribulations that you're going through. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ said that, that in this world you, have, you will have troubles, you will have tribulation. But, it, but then he said, uh, guys, it's okay. Why? Because I have overcome the world. And so there's a sense, in, in, I'm sure in Simeon's mind, as he lived his life day in and day out, we don't know how old this guy was. The text does not say. Some people said he was very, very old. We, we don't know that. But however old he was, there was probably a sense of just looking forward to the coming of Christ. And then finally, that day when the Holy Spirit said, I want you to go to the temple. And when he went to the temple, he sees this young mom and young dad with this baby, an eighth-day-old baby. And he said, that's the Messiah. And he gladly, with a smile on his face and a beat in his heart, and he just said, God, now I can die. Let me depart in peace. One of the ladies in our church, I count her as part of our church, uh, who I thought was, when, when she got sick and faced with problems that the doctors could, could, couldn't even figure out, and her attitude, the times I visited her, reflected really the same attitude that she had before she was sick. And we had talked about death and dying and life and this, is, uh, this was uh, Joanna Speciali's mom, Jean McClellan. And I still remember one day when I was at the hospital and I went to see her. And she just always, I'll always see Jean with a smile on her face, that round face, white hair that looks like Barbara Bush to me. Always had that smile. The doctors didn't know what was wrong with her. And there were fears because of all the things that was wrong with her. And yet she could smile. And in fact, she told me, she said, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? It is also the best thing that can happen to me. And there's a sense for the heart of the believer, there's got to be that tension that wants us, that instinctive desire for us to want to live. At the same time, there's got to be a pull to see as we grow in our faith in the Lord, to, see, to say, to long, to look forward to, to anticipate seeing Jesus face to face. And I don't know where you are as a believer. I don't know what death, how you look at death. I don't know how you look at life. But I want to encourage you that the more you grow in your faith through the word taught by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, the more there'll be that appreciation and that longing in our hearts that one of these days we will see him face to face. 
Simeon's song was not also just about him, but it was also, look at what it says. It is, it is also about salvation. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. But it was not just salvation for the nation of Israel. He understood something about the word of God as he did about the promised Messiah. He said, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. A lot of the Jewish beliefs, even though God never hid it from them, that his desire was for all the peoples in the world to know who he was and to know who he is. There was a sense that there was this nationalism amongst the Jewish people that they somehow thought that Christ was, or the Messiah was coming only for the Jewish nation, but there were people like Simeon who understood the scriptures and said, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people Israel. And then after praising God, this joyful release and worship of God, ready to die now, proclaiming his salvation, not only for Israel, but also for the Gentiles. He probably lowers the Jesus as a, as a baby in his arms. And, and it says in verse 34, Then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. It is interesting that the falling and rising here uh, have one subject. And I believe because of that, because of the way it's constructed in, 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 in the way it's con constructed here, that it's talking about the nation as a whole, that as a nation they will fall, that, that Jesus will be the stone that causes Israel to stumble. And of course, later on, it will all, he will also be the, the one that will cause him to stand up, the rising of Israel. Of course, there were a lot of people who, who became believers, even at the time, as we, we've seen in the book of Acts. And uh, there are also a lot of people who have rejected him. To this day, the nation of Israel has rejected their Messiah. And we need to keep praying for them. But not only did he say that about Jesus causing the falling and rising of many in Israel, and it says also to be a sign that will be spoken, spoken against. He will be a sign to them. Sign here has to do with, with like the, the use of the language, the same language in all of the Gospels. So he's about signs and miracles and wonders, signs and wonders. It is, but here the emphasis is not so much on the power, although the power is definitely a part of the sign, but it has to do with, with the revelation of who God was through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is why for us as believers, while we can be uh, amazed, utterly amazed at the things that Jesus did when He was here, all the miracles that He performed, the greatest thing for us, we should, we should understand this, is for instance what the writer of, what, what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, that He was the image of the invisible God. That he is the one, he is the, as John said in, in, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That he literally, God came into the flesh and dwelt amongst us. And that is really the, the wonderful, wonderful thing about, about who Christ is, that he was the fulfillment of all that God has said he was going to do through the Messiah. And yet, look at the, the, the prophecy that, he, that, that Simeon said to Mary and Joseph. A sign that will be spoken against. He was spoken against by his own people. still being spoken against by people from all parts of the world today. And you know, the, the, 
the role that we have, the responsibility that we have, is not to correct people's opinion of Jesus. It's to simply proclaim who he is. It is up to the Holy Spirit to convict their hearts. The role that we have is to, not to win de debates, but it's to proclaim the gospel so that God can win converts of people. You, are, you and I are supposed to make disciples, and we're supposed to be doing that. It says in verse 35, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then I'm sure Simeon, just looking at Mary, said this, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Gary Blair sang a song a couple of weeks ago about Mary, did you know? I don't know. The text does not say for us. The next time, really, the last time we find Mary is in the book of Acts. We find her with believers in Acts chapter 1 praying in the upper room. She was a godly follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, her own son, the Messiah. But I don't know how it was growing up with Jesus and watching him grow. And I knew what well, we know from, from the text, how difficult it was for her to watch her own son, the Messiah, be crucified on that cross and then to die the horrible death that he died. And so it was prophesied to him. But not only was Simeon there, and probably as Simeon was finishing up what he was saying, it says in verse 36, there was also a prophetess, Anna. Anna is a name that means grace, and it's the, 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 the Greek form of the Hebrew Hannah. And it says she was a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. By the way, this is not uncommon for her to be a prophetess. Uh, there were other prophetesses in the Old Testament. There was, uh, of course, Deborah. We know of Deborah in, in, Deb in uh, Judges chapter 4. And, and even Philip, the evangelist in Acts. Uh, he had four daughters, and they were all prophesying. So this was not uncommon for her to be a prophetess. Uh, from the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years. So she was married seven years. And, and I know the translation doesn't do justice with probably what it means. And then she was a widow. and says until she was, the NIV says until she was 84. Probably she was widowed uh, until the age 84, meaning that she's still alive. She was eight, for 84 years, she's been a widow. She had left the temple but worshiped night and day fasting and praying. Widows at the time were one of the ones that you'll find in the Old Testament. The, the, the church or the, the temple was supposed to care for. Uh, the widows, the, the aliens, the, the orphans, the ones who cannot take care of themselves. And, and she was there devoting her, herself to fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child. So she gave thanks to God, praises God like Simeon did. But what does she do? She doesn't just stop and praising God and talking to Mary and Joseph. But look at what she does. And spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. There were probably people around there. And she started probably saying, hey, this is the Messiah. This is the promised Messiah. He's here. The Messiah is here. And she was unafraid to tell people about who Christ was. And that should be the attitude that we should have even today. Now, I don't want you to miss something here. We've looked at Simeon. We've looked at Anna. But don't miss something here. Look at beginning in verse 21. I want you to see how precise Mary and Joseph were in following the requirements of the law. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, verse 21, he, named, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he had been conceived that is in accordance with Leviticus chapter 12, that on the eighth day, each male child, each son, will be supposed to be circumcised. 
It says in verse 22, When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. So they go back for the purification, according to the law of the Lord, in, uh, in Exodus and in Leviticus, and then she was purified, or he was, uh, was for her purification, and then says to offer a sacrifice in keeping what is, what is said with the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons, which probably tells, you, tells us that in the chronolo- chronology of, of, like, uh, of, the, of the first advent, this was prior to the visit of the wise men uh, before they met the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if what they had offered were something that poor people would offer, and of course after the wise men had, uh, had seen Jesus, they had given him uh, enough to cover the, the necessary lamb that was, that was uh, uh, supposed to be offered. And then look at verse, uh, verse uh, 39. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. So they were followers. They were trying to do They were doing what was required of the law. Now, I say that to say this to you. This Simeon, these two men, these two people, Simeon and Anna, was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And, of course, the Jewish people were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, as God had promised, beginning in Genesis 3.15. And of course, here's the fulfillment of all of that in Christ, in Jesus Christ. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus Christ, listen to this. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the, what the law required for everything that the Jewish nation was required to do in terms of sacraments, and offerings, purification rites, and all of that. Every time they did their sacrifices every day, at 9 o'clock in the morning, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, every time they threw uh, blood on, that, on the altar, on the base of that altar, they were basically saying, remember God what it is that you have promised. It, it is all looking forward to what Christ was going to do. When they had their Passover meal, it is looking forward to what Christ was going to do, to the coming of the Messiah. To the feasts that they observed, it was all, they were all looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And so when Jesus came, he fulfilled all of that. Now I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. I just want to show you something here. That for you and me today to live our lives in a godly, spiritual sense, you do not have to follow the law as they did. I want you to see something here. There was a church in Colossae. Paul has never been, was never there. He never visited, but he was established when he was based in Ephesus for three years. And there were some problems in the church in Colossae. They were inundated with these teachings that say, for you to be truly spiritual, you have to be, number one, enamored with philosophy. You have to be good in philosophy, Greek philosophy. Or you have to follow legalism, the, the ways of the law, and you have to follow it like the Jewish people have followed it, or they'd say, hey, we've got this kind of neat thing about we worship this, this mystical God and the worship of angels, and he gives us this, this revelation through somehow our, our 
our subconscious mind, or there was a group of people saying, if you divest yourself of any uh, material comforts, then you will be truly, truly spiritual. But listen to what Paul said, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. I want, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. I don't know if you know this, if you've noticed this, but in the New Testament, every time it mentions a mystery, and then like here, it's the mystery of God, and says, namely Christ. He tells us what it is, the mystery that he's talking about, meaning it's, it's already been given. It's already been revealed. The mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom... Now, please understand what Paul is saying here, what the Holy Spirit is telling us. Christ, this is Christ. He said, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So how do we grow? He said, just as you receive Him as your Savior, how do we grow in Him? He says, rooted and built up in Christ. We are rooted in Him, and we are built up in Christ in understanding who Christ is. And overflowing with thankfulness, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition. And, and, and the NIV says the basic principles, another phrase for this is kind of like the elementary stuff, preschool stuff of this world. People think they're smart because they can get into uh, uh, phil philosophical arguments with you. But God says, these are just basic, this is the ABCs of the world. For in Christ, listen to this, this is the truth where everything else pivots from or pivots on. For in Christ, he says, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ. All that God is, is in Christ. All that Christ is, is in the believer or in the believers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. If the fullness of Christ is in us, are we lacking in anything? Yes, no. Are we lacking in anything? If the fullness of Christ, if the fullness of God is in Christ and the fullness of Christ is in you as a believer and in us as believers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is there something that's missing in us? Do you have to do anything to get any more of Christ? Like maybe you have to work harder so you can get Maybe his left arm or his right foot or his little pinky or whatever that people say you can get by extraordinary means. No, of course not. Are y'all awake? Y'all are just looking at me. Okay. Uh, he says, have been given the fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. It says, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the old nature. 
not with the circumcision done by the hands of man, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Now, what is he talking about? That circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with the Jewish nation. But the real circumcision that matters is the circumcision that, that was done by Christ in our hearts. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircum uncircumcision of your sinful nature, it says, God made you alive with Christ. It is not you, it's not me who did it, it's God who did it for us. God made you alive with Christ. He says, he forgave us how much of our sins, according to the next verse. All of our sins. Does that mean that maybe he missed one or two? No, it means all of our sins. Having canceled what? What did he cancel when he did all of this? Look at the text. The written code that stood against us and was opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Everything that God had said, this is who I am and I want you to follow me. Man could not me measure up to that. And therefore, God had to, Christ had to come and he was, he fulfilled all of what you and I could not fulfill. So in him, we have forgiveness. We have sonship. In Christ. It says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And then he says this, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Listen to what the next, next verse. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I don't have, well, there's some, you can't see it, but right here, just to the edge of this thing here, it's a shadow. If I need to sit here, I cannot sit on the shadow because I'll be sitting on the floor. Wouldn't mean anything, will it? And I know I've said this to you before. When I get home, I don't kiss Kim's shadow. I kiss Kim. Why would I kiss the shadow? That doesn't even make sense. But do you understand what the Lord is telling us? That in Christ, the fulfillment of everything that is ever done is found in him. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So, he says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen in his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this, wor of this world, he's saying since you died to the ABCs of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to it, to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom and their self-imposed worship, the false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, after telling them that those things don't matter, then Paul tells us, God tells us, this then is how you live, how you are uh, spiritual, how you live the spiritual life. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. That's in the indicative, meaning it's a reality. You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. Lacan is dead. Christ now lives in me, and your life is now hidden 
with Christ in God. The word hidden here is where we get the word crypt, like a, in, in, in a cemetery. It is secure. It is dead. It is a crypt because a dead person lives there, and it's also secure because Christ is the one who's in control of that right now. And so he says, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And then verse 4 says this, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So how do we live our lives? You know, it's Christmas, is, it's fun. We got to enjoy families and stuff. And, but stories like of Simeon and Anna tells us something, that there's something that we can look forward to, that it, this is not just living life from Christmas to Christmas. That there's a reality, and we, in our church believes this and we teach this that there's we we, that there's nothing no prophecies that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church it can happen at any moment meaning that christ can just call the church out of here and will be gone and the ones who are left are the ones who have rejected christ maybe some people who are baptists some people who are whatever they are and they practice religion but they've never really trusted christ are still going to be left here and they should know what it is that they have missed but for those of us for all of us, really, we need to make sure where we are. But then he says in this in verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Why is that? Because in, in, in Revelation chapter 19, when it talks about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is after the rapture of the church, and this is, he's about to establish his thousand-year reign, and, and he comes and says he comes with the armies of heaven. And, and the description of those people who were following him dressed in white linen. White linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints, meaning the saints will be following him from heaven, and you and I will be following him. We will appear in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a longing. That's something that we can look forward to, that at any moment you and I can be gone from here. And I know that kind of brings fear to some of your hearts. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. I know what you, I, I used to say the same thing. When Kim and I were first engaged, uh, whatever that meant, because I never proposed to her, I didn't know you're supposed to propose. Uh, I didn't know you're supposed to buy a ring. She had to tell me after we were engaged, she said, we need to go buy a ring. I said, what for? I, I didn't grow up that way. Um, I thought you just got married. Anyway, but before we were married, I was praying. I understood this enough at the time. I said, Lord, please don't come back. Don't rapture the church before Kim and I get married. Please let us be married first. Well, Micah was a honeymoon baby. His due date was exactly nine months to the day of our wedding day. And then he had the goal of coming two weeks early, but anyway. Uh, but when Kim was pregnant, I said, please, Lord, don't, don't rapture the church yet until after Micah is born and we get to enjoy him a little bit. And, and I know there are things in life that we, and I understand that, but more and more the older I get, the older in the faith I get, the more the desire, I mean, I still want to see my kids uh, grow up and mature and our grandkids to do the same thing. Uh, there's a longing that God gives in our hearts, that puts in our hearts a longing to see the Lord Jesus face to face. And it's that longing that is lived out in every single day when we struggle with not wanting to spend time with God or being too busy and the Lord just would not give us rest until we get to spend time with Him because He becomes the number one foremost person in our life. 
not the schedule that we have, not the appointments we have, not the job that we have, but it is him who gives flavor and meaning and purpose to everything that you and I are and everything that we do. That's why a lot of Christians, a lot of people struggle with purpose in life. They just go from one day to another, from one week to another, from month to month in their jobs or whatever it is they're doing because they don't see that Christ's purpose in their life. They think living life the longest. I saw the, the picture of this woman who's 120 some odd years old, and I thought she can have the record <laughs> of being the oldest person to have lived. I don't want that record, not with my eczema and all the physical problems I have. I don't want to live that long to, be, uh, to have all those problems. And she may be in perfect health. She's from China. Uh, There was another lady in our church many years ago, and I'll always, kind of like Jean, I'll always remember her face smiling. She developed cancer. I don't remember how old she was. She didn't seem to me that, that old. Her name was Polly Yates. She used to sit right there, right where you all are, um, Craig and Lynn. Polly was just a sweet lady. And uh, she has a son who is not a believer, he's a physician. And I remember visiting her in the hospital the last week that she was on this earth. And I uh, got to visit with her son. And Polly never begrudged God for the cancer that she had, and even for her facing death. She said, we all will face death. And I said, well, yeah, Hebrews 9.27 says that, doesn't it? Of course, I didn't say that to her, but she had that attitude that she understood life and she understood death. She wanted to live, but she also wanted to see her Savior. And she lived her life like that, that in her dying days, she exhibited, she exuded this confidence, this joy, just joyous confidence of where she was going. And I know I've told you her story before because it still strikes me. I still remember Polly many times because I had many conversations with her about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just love how her heart would just be there's this outpouring of things about Christ and about God and the things she's learning from the Scriptures. And she was always glad to see me because she'd say, I can't wait to tell you what it is that God has shown me in His Word. And she just couldn't wait to share those things with me. And we would have this wonderful conversation about the Lord Jesus Christ and about his word. And it was at that last week, last couple of days of her life, she had been in a semi-coma, and I don't know if it was induced or what, but she hadn't been waking up. And the day before she died, I was in there, and there was a nurse who was checking her vitals, was grabbed a hold of her left arm, was feeling her purse, and her purse, her pulse. And, and she wakes up, she opens her eyes, and her eyes immediately goes down to the belly of this lady, the nurse. And she said, this is a lady who is dying. Polly smiles and she said, honey, you are pregnant, you're expecting. And the nurse said, yes, ma'am, I am. And without uttering any more words, she just put her hand on that stomach of that lady and begins to pray for that baby that was in that womb, that that baby would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, there are people who, understand, who understood, who understand their purpose in life. Purpose in life was not just to live forever. And my prayer for us is that we will develop a walk with the Lord that uh, we all go through tough times in life. We live in a fallen world. We live in an evil world. Uh, people get sick. People die. We have accidents. Life can turn on a dime from all the great things that's going on. All of a sudden, things will just go wrong. How do we live? How do we respond to those things? How do we see life when those things happen? How do we see life just in the normal things in life when you're just living your life on an everyday thing? How do you see life and death? It is only as we see it through the lens of Christ that he is our foundation. There were two people, Simeon and Anna, who were looking forward to seeing the Messiah. My prayer for us is that we will also look forward to seeing our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are not sure that you will see Jesus Christ when you die, I encourage you to talk to one of our to one of us, one of our elders will be here after the service. But make sure you can have enjoyed, you could have enjoyed the nicest Christmas you have. But if something happens to you today and you do not know where you're going, you do not have that confidence. Maybe you've been religious, but you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Make sure of that. His desire is for you to come to know him. Let us pray. Father, we humbly just ask for your mercies and your grace that our hearts would be drawn to you, Father, that the entanglements of this world would dissipate as we grow closer in our walk with you, as we see you, Father, for who you are as our God and as our Savior. Lord, may you be the, our foundation, may you be our hope, may you be our joy, may you be our delight. May you be our wisdom for our daily walk with you, for the daily things that we need. May we experience your grace and your mercy that you have promised, Lord, as we walk with you. May we grow in appreciation of the bigness, the majesty, and the glory of our God, the Father that nothing scares us except you. And that, Father, that we become truly the salt and light that you've called us to be in this dark world that desperately needs to see the light of Christ. May your name be lifted up. May your name be proclaimed through your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.